Good afternoon, everyone. That was sort of lackadaisical, if you don't mind my saying. Good afternoon, everyone. Much better, much better. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm delighted to see this hardy band of polar explorers, or at least as close as Richmond comes to polar conditions. Um, I know there are probably some, still some people coming in, finding parking spots for their dog sleds and all that, but uh, we, will get, uh, we will get started. I am delighted to welcome you to today's Banner Lecture, the first of the new year here in the Robbins Family Forum. And as always, I thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. <clears throat> Before we begin today's program, let me remind you of our next Banner Lecture, which will take place here at noon on Thursday, February 6th. That day, Margaret Eads will deliver a banner lecture entitled, The Letters of Oliver and Bernie Hill, The Making of a Legendary Civil Rights Lawyer. Again, that's February 6th in a couple of weeks on a Thursday. The first installment of this year's See You in Class program, and just show of hands, who have taken classes in our See You in Class program here? All right, so look around. A few of you have. It's a wonderful um, way to learn things in a little more depth, even, than you get in a banner lecture. But our See You in Class program kicks off this year uh, with Bert Dunkerley from the Richmond National Battlefield Park. And he will be here to lead a two-part class entitled 1814, War Comes to Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, now that we're in the bicentennial year of that year of the War of 1812. Those classes that Bert will be teaching will meet at 5.30 p.m., on February 6th and 13th. So if you're interested more in the War of 1812, which is perhaps not as well known by many of us as it should be, that's a great opportunity for you. Uh, let me also tell you about a special event that you will have seen up on the screen before we started, um, and that's something that will be taking place here in the Robbins Family Forum on Saturday, February 8th at 1 p.m. As part of this year's uh, VCU Southern Film Festival, the VHS will be hosting a showing of the feature film, Mickey, A Family Story, which was uh, produced in 2004. It was written by uh, John Grisham, who, as you know, now lives in Virginia, in Charlottesville, and the movie was filmed here in Virginia. Harry Connick Jr. stars in this family film about parenting, ethics, and Little League baseball. And a post-film discussion will take place to sort of supplement that movie, and that will include Richard and Kathy Verlander, whose son is kind of famous these days, their son Justin, who is uh, probably one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. Um, and they will be here uh, to lead a post-film discussion about some themes within the film. Uh, the event's co-sponsored by the Richmond Flying Squirrels, and it's free and open to the public. So I hope you'll see, you'll avail yourselves of that opportunity, February 8th at 1 p.m. You can always find out more information about anything I've mentioned and other things on our calendar on our website, vahistorical.org or at the museum shop on your way out. Now, one last little piece of uh, housekeeping before I introduce the speaker, and that is to ask you to take your cell phones, and if they're still working in the sub-zero temperatures, please turn them off or silence them. Now, in the age of adventure, when dirigibles coasted through the air and vast swaths of the earth remained untouched and unseen by man, one pack of relentless explorers thank you very much, competed in the race of a lifetime to be the first aviator to fly over the North Pole. The main players in this high-stakes game were Richard Byrd, a dashing Navy officer and early aviation pioneer, and Roald Amundsen, the bitter rival of Byrd's and a hardened veteran of polar expeditions. Each man was determined to be the first to fly over the North Pole, despite brutal weather conditions, financial disasters, world wars, and their own personal demons. Byrd and Amundsen's epic struggle for air primacy ended in a Homeric episode in which one man had to fly to the rescue of his downed nemesis and left behind an enduring mystery. Who was the first man to fly over the North Pole? Sheldon Bart is a senior associate of Lawrence and Pagnonian Associates, a fundraising firm based in New York City. A member of the Board of Governors of the American Polar Society and president and founder of Wilderness Research Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to mount scientific expeditions for university-based researchers. 
He is no stranger to the Arctic region, where he organized and led the 1996 American expedition to Baffin Island in the Canadian Eastern Arctic, and was project manager for the 2010 WRF Antarctic Peninsula Field Program. He returned to the region in the summer of 2011 as a historian lecturer aboard the MS Expedition. A published author and lecturer, Sheldon has written and published fiction and nonfiction and is currently working on a novel based on his own adventures in the Arctic. His latest book, Race to the Top of the World, Richard Byrd and the First Flight to the North Pole, was published in the fall of 2013, and it is available in our museum shop for you to purchase and have Sheldon sign after the lecture. So please join me in a warm, warm, Virginia welcome to Sheldon Bart, who will speak to us today about a race to the top of the world. Hi. Thanks for coming. I want to ask you all a question. How many people believe that clocks run clockwise? <laughs> well, clocks only run clockwise if you're standing outside of the clock looking at the clock head on. But if you were inside the clock, you would see that the mechanism actually runs counterclockwise. You probably never thought about it from the point of view of the clock. <laughs> <clears throat> How many people believe that the shortest distance between two points is always a straight line? <laughs> well, if you wanted to fly between, say, New York and Paris, the shortest distance between those two cities would not be on a straight line. If you took out your atlas and drew a straight line, no. The shortest distance would be on a curved line on an arc of a great circle that cuts the globe in half and passes through New York and Paris. The reason I mention these things is that a wise man once said that history is not a record of what has happened. History is a record of what people believe has occurred. Beliefs can be tricky and troublesome things. Today, people believe that the Arctic will come into prominence as never before. Shipping lanes have opened seasonally in the Arctic Ocean, and there's a presumption of vast mineral resources beneath the surface of the polar sea and beneath the tundra of the high Arctic islands. An international competition has arisen to exploit those natural resources. A hundred years ago, people believed that the Arctic would come into prominence as never before. Throughout the industrialized world, people believed that there was new uncharted land smack in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, and that it was half the size of Greenland. Now, something new was coming into the world at that time, and it was called aviation. And it was further believed that as aviation developed, that lost continent would have great military and commercial value. And as a consequence, an international competition arose to be the first to find and claim that new land. The British, the French, 
the Germans all announced plans for a transpolar flight, which either failed to get off the ground or to get very far north. Even the Bolsheviks, the former Soviet Union, then in its collectivist infancy, wanted to get in on the excitement. The Soviet North Pole flight was conceived as an instrument of the class struggle. The Bolsheviks threatened to deploy a specially designed airplane with four engines and powerful wireless equipment. I'm quoting from a contemporary newspaper. As soon as the pole was reached, the following message would be transmitted. Workers of the entire world, arise. The red flag of revolution floats at the top of the world. It took 10 years, 10 years for the race to the top of the world to be resolved and for humanity to learn that that mythical continent didn't exist at all. Things came to a head in 1926 when three great explorers competed to find what the New York Times called the lost Atlantis of the North. Roald Amundsen of Norway, the great Roald Amundsen, the first human to set foot on the South Pole. George Hubert Wilkins of Australia. And in this corner, for the United States of America, Richard Byrd of Virginia. Who was Richard Byrd? Well, he was a Navy officer, but in the 1920s and 30s, he organized a series of private expeditions that elevated him to worldwide acclaim. These were all-American outings featuring a ragtag conglomeration of volunteers from every strata of society. Millionaires and roustabouts, songwriters and PhDs. Byrd conceived the projects, recruited the personnel, raised the money, and executed command. He made historic flights over oceans, poles, and glacial landscapes. He conducted the first modern aerial mapping surveys of the polar regions. He brought back vast databases compiled by the scientists who accompanied him. He captured the imagination of millions of American men, women, and children. Like Lindbergh, he was one of the most celebrated personalities of his era. He received three ticker tape parades in New York City, a record broken only by the New York Yankees. <laughs> Broadway stars performed in shortwave radio broadcasts transmitted to his Antarctic compound. A New York Times correspondent accompanied him to Antarctica and filed daily dispatches printed not only in the Times, but in newspapers across the country, Europe, and South America. A major publishing house brought out a biography of Bird's dog. <laughs> he was the Babe Ruth, the Beatles of exploration. You know, we live in a consumer society. And if you stop to think about it, it's as strange as any form 
of social arrangement that has ever existed on this planet. And if you step back and gain a bit of perspective on it, a number of recurring patterns can be discerned. One of those patterns is that when a person becomes celebrated, the media first make a lot of money by generating products that build them up. Then the media make even more money by generating products that tear them down. Think back a couple of election cycles ago to a presidential candidate named Howard Dean. Howard Dean ran through the whole process in the space of about three weeks. <laughs> Admiral Byrd attracted infinitely more attention than Howard Dean ever did. And in Byrd's case, the cycle is still going on. As a result, almost every part of his life and career have become controversial, but none more so than his flight to the North Pole, his claim of having attained 90 degrees north on May 9th, 1926. And here we get back into the realm of what people believe. I've seen everything that the detractors have seen. And I've seen things that no researcher has ever referenced before me. And my conclusion is that all of the controversies still swirling around Admiral Byrd, all of them, all, are based on incomplete research, distortion, and superficial assessment. Let me give you an example of what I mean. You all know that Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly nonstop from New York to Paris on a great circle course. You may not know that he was one of many aviators who competed for the honors in 1927, including Richard Byrd. And you may not know that six men died attempting to accomplish this fleet. Lindbergh was the dark horse. Byrd was the heavy favorite. And quite likely, Byrd would have beaten Lindbergh if his aircraft hadn't crashed on a test flight. Whereas Lindbergh flew in a small souped up sports car of an airplane, Byrd wanted to do something different. He wanted to herald the age of regular passenger flights across the Atlantic Ocean. So he elected to fly in a large transport plane. Whereas Lucky Lindy was really lucky and had fair weather for almost the entirety of his flight, Bird ran into the worst possible conditions. He reached France at night and in the middle of a torrential storm. Pitch darkness, heavy rain, practically zero visibility. Bird's role on the transatlantic flight was that of navigator and flight commander. There were three other crew members on that aircraft, including a young Norwegian relief pilot named Bernt Balkan. Balkan would become the grandfather of the Byrd detractors. Admiral Byrd died in 1957, 
The following year, in 1958, Balkan came out with a memoir called Come North With Me, ghostwritten by Corey Ford, an early contributor to the New Yorker magazine. Balkan's book signaled the tear-down phase of the Bird media cycle. Among a number of other allegations that Balkan made, he told the following tale. He said that in the pouring rain and the pitch darkness, Bird ordered his chief pilot to divert to the north of France, to the coast of Normandy. Balkan piped up at that point. He said that he had flown as a student pilot over France and that they could make a beeline to Paris by following the railroad tracks. Bird, however, reiterated his order, saying to the chief pilot, fly as I've told you. Balkan wrote, I have never understood why Bird gave that command. A tale that has been repeated by one generation of detractors after another. Actually, diverting to the north was the most defensible decision that Bird could have made. During the flight planning, in his usual careful, meticulous manner, he sent an advance man to France, Lieutenant Commander Fitzhugh Green, United States Navy. Green's mission was to interview the French aviators and find out from them what was the best route to Paris and under what conditions. The French aviators unanimously said that the northern route was the best. That was the flight path of the London-Paris, Paris-London airliners. There were beacons along that route. The towns along the coast of Normandy were very well lit up. The French pilots said, just follow those beacons and follow those town lights to the mouth of the Seine, particularly if you run into any difficulties. See what I mean about incomplete research, distortion, and superficial assessment? All right, let's talk about the North Pole flight. I can't cover every aspect and angle of the North Pole controversy in 50, 60 minutes. Nobody can. But I'll give you, you know, the salient details. The most cogent of the detractors say that the flight could not have been made in 15 hours and 30 minutes. They say that the aircraft Bird used, a Fokker trimotor with three right whirlwind J4B engines, didn't have the capability to fly from Kings Bay on the island of Spitsbergen to the North Pole and back within that time frame. Where did 15 hours and 30 minutes come from? Bird never said that he made the flight in 15 hours and 30 minutes. He said that he and his pilot, Floyd Bennett, accomplished the flight in 15 hours and 57 minutes. And the flight times that he gave were certified in a statement by the captain of his expedition vessel, the Chantier. The skipper, Captain Mike Brennan, 
gave 0037 hours Greenwich time. Greenwich time being a standard used by navigators as the departure. And he gave as the return 16 hours and 34 minutes Greenwich. The National Geographic Society checked Bird's flight records, concluded that he was off by one minute, and that he accomplished the flight in 15 hours and 58 minutes. The New York Times had correspondence on the scene. The Times reported the flight as having been made in 15 hours and 51 minutes. There was an altitude barograph on that airplane. What's an altitude barograph? It's an instrument that's sensitive to changes in atmospheric pressure. It's like a barometer, which also is an instrument sensitive to changes in atmospheric pressure. And it's like an altimeter. An altimeter contains a pressure-sensitive element which is connected to a dial and a calibrated scale. An altitude barograph contains a pressure-sensitive element which is connected to a timer and a register, and it produces a long, jagged line like a cardiogram. That line is a record of the altitudes attained by the aircraft. Every significant flight of the Pioneer era had an altitude barograph aboard, sealed, so you couldn't mess with it. The reason is, suppose you wanted to attempt an endurance flight. You wanted to stay up in the air, you know, longer than anyone before you. The sealed barograph proved that you didn't just take off, fly out of sight, land, go to sleep, take off, and come back to the starting point. This is the barograph that was sealed aboard Bird's airplane. He named it the Josephine Ford in honor of the youngest daughter of his greatest benefactor, Etzel Ford. And the jagged line shows a duration of 15 hours and 45 minutes. But there was an error in that instrument. That's what the writing on the bottom indicates. After the flight, the instrument was tested. And as you might expect, it was shown to perform sluggishly after having been exposed to very cold weather. It was slow by about 15 minutes, but the error varied. The flight took longer than 15 hours and 45 minutes, but how much longer? The barograph record was analyzed at Ohio State University, and depending on how you conceived that variable error, the flight could have taken as long as 15 hours and 58 minutes, which was National Geographic Society time, or it could have been as short as 15 hours and 51 minutes, which was New York Times time. 
where did 15 hours and 30 minutes come from? Everybody agrees that Burr took off to borrow a line from a Frank Sinatra song in the wee small hours of the morning when Saturday night, May 8th, 1926, rolled around into Sunday, May 9th. Where were the correspondents in the wee small hours of the morning? Were they at the takeoff site, standing on the makeshift runway that Bird's men hacked out of the snow, in the freezing cold, shivering, their notebooks in their hands, taking notes? No. I'll tell you where they were. They were getting drunk. <laughs> there were no bars in Kings Bay in 1926. There are no bars there now. But there was a Norwegian naval vessel. It was a gunboat, and it was called the Heimdall. And it had been dispatched to Kings Bay to be of assistance to Rode Amundsen's expedition. Amundsen was starting from the very same point. I found an article in an Italian newspaper called the Corriere della Serra, a name I'm probably mispronouncing like crazy, but which translates as Evening Courier. It was published out of Milan and it was filed by a correspondent named Cesco Tomaselli, who was there in Kings Bay in May of 1926. What was an Italian journalist doing on an island halfway between Norway and the North Pole in May of 1926? Well, Amundsen's aircraft was a dirigible designed by the Italian aeronaut, Colonel Umberto Nobile. And Colonel Nobile had been engaged as the pilot for Amundsen's transpolar flight. And Nobile had brought with him a number of his Italian mechanics. That was what an Italian correspondent from Milan was doing in Kings Bay, Spitsbergen. This article I found on microfilm in the New York Public Library was published 11 May 1926, dateline 9 May, 1,200 hours. A friend of mine translated it for me. And this is what Cesco Tomaselli wrote. Last night, a group of Italians, Norwegians, and Americans had gotten together in the Grand Salon of the gunship Heimdall, which was adorned with the flags of all three nations, and were happily drinking toasts to one another. It's customary at Norwegian banquets to drink a toast to everyone at the table. <laughs> and there were 40 of us. <laughs> Our merrymaking was interrupted every now and then by the rumble of motors. Curiosity prompted us to go to the portholes. It turned out that Bird's Fokker transmotor, trimotor, was making another of its numerous attempts to take off. We knew that Bird had been impatient to be underway ever since the Norga, Amundsen's dirigible, arrived in Kings Bay. But we didn't realize that his departure was imminent. Around midnight, 
we had seen a bunch of the audacious Americans still trying to level off a runway, but it didn't seem to us as if the plane was just about to take off. We learned this morning that the Fokker had taken off at 2 o'clock in the morning and had disappeared northward. Tomaselli filed a follow-up story, 9 May, 1800 hours. At 1725 p.m., 525, the Fokker trimotor, flown by Bird and Bennett, appeared at a high altitude in the limpid sky. The Norwegian correspondent from Often Posten, which translates as Evening Post, agreed with Tomaselli. In the wee small hours of the morning, they didn't know the plane had taken off. They didn't know what time the plane had taken off. One night of serious drinking has led to a controversy going on now 88 years. <laughs> Bert Balkin was there. He was, he was there in Kings Bay. His role was that of a bench player on Amundsen's aviation team. What are the flight times that Balkin gives? He gives a duration of 15 hours and 30 minutes. His departure time, 0037 hours Greenwich, thereby agreeing with Captain Mike Brennan. His return time, 1607 Greenwich. There was a one hour time difference between Greenwich time and local time on Kings Bay. 1607 Greenwich is 1707 local time, 507, or 18 minutes earlier than when, according to Tomaselli, the Fokker trimotor appeared at a high altitude in the limpid sky. What was the capability of that aircraft? What was the capability of a Fokker trimotor? And how do we know what its capability was? In the aftermath of the North Pole flight in October and November 1926, the Josephine Ford embarked on a goodwill tour of 50 American cities from the East Coast to the West Coast and back to promote aviation. The pilot was Floyd Bennett and the co-pilot was Burnt Balkan. Balkan had made a career move at Spitsburg and he had switched expeditions. We have Balkan's flight log According to the flight log on that Goodwill tour, the air, airplane averaged an airspeed of 90 miles an hour. The detractors say that the distance to the pole from Kings Bay and back along the meridian of longitude that Bird followed, 1,335 nautical miles or 1,535 statute miles, they say it wasn't possible to complete a flight of that distance at an average velocity of 90 miles an hour within any of the given flight times, at least not without a stiff wind coming and going.
Oh my God. Well, we also have Balkan's engine log. The three engines of that Fokker aircraft on the Goodwill tour was set at from 1,400 RPMs to 1,500 RPMs. The reason flight engineers exist is that pilots can change the way their aircraft performs. We also have a record of a test flight of the same airplane with the same type of engines. Not the same engines, but the same type of engines as Bird used on the North Pole flight. The United States Army tested the plane before Bird acquired it. The Army test pilots loaded it up with 4,000 pounds of personnel and dead weight and pulled 1,755 RPMs from those engines. And they achieved a maximum airspeed of 117 miles an hour. So there was a little room for maneuver there. What pilots generally do on long-distance flights is that they employ a high engine setting in the initial stages of that flight. And then as fuel is consumed and as motor oil is consumed, and the airplane becomes lighter and lighter, they gradually retard the amount of power pulled from the engines so they could fly more economically. There is evidence that Bird followed this pattern, which is called cruise control, on his 1927 transatlantic flight and on his 19. 29 South Pole flight. The Balkan logs don't tell us anything about the capability of the Fokker trimotor and its power plant. All the logs tell us is that on the Goodwill tour, the leisurely Goodwill tour of the United States, Bennett and Balkan weren't asking the aircraft to work too hard. You know, it's easy to repeat an allegation made by someone else. Takes a lot more time and a lot more effort to go to the Bird Polar Research Center at Ohio State University where the Bird papers are preserved or to the National Archives, or to other archives around the country, and actually dig down and seek the truth. And you see this same pattern over and over and over in so many of the other controversies that have been spun around Admiral Byrd. A former president of the Institute of Navigation, who was very helpful to me in my research, he said to me, he said, you know, Admiral so-and-so said that Byrd never graduated with his class at the academy, that he was held back. I went to the Naval Academy. I checked the academy's records and not only did Berg graduate with his class on time, but it took some doing. He busted his ankle attempting some risky gymnastics in his senior year. He spent a lot of time in the hospital, and he missed a lot of class time. The final exams at the academy in those days, and perhaps now as well, were so arduous that midshipmen were allowed to compensate for a poor grade on their exams 
if they made a good showing in class. But Bird couldn't do that because he missed so much class time being in a hospital. But he buckled down, passed his exams, and graduated just about in the middle of the class of 1912. People have said to me, you know, Bird never learned how to fly. He never, he never went through flight training. I've seen his student flight log. Not only did he go through flight instruction at Pensacola, which is where the naval, uh, where the Navy sent candidates to learn to fly in 1917, but he soloed and he got his wings in the usual, you know, normal amount of time. It's been said, and it's been believed, that he was a coward. He first went north in 1925 as a member of an Arctic expedition in search of new land. An expedition led by Donald McMillan, who was America's foremost polar explorer between Peary and Byrd. Byrd participated in this outing as the leader of a small unit of naval aviators. A young doctor from Massachusetts accompanied the expedition as its physician. His name was Davidoff. He kept a detailed diary. He didn't like Richard Byrd very much, but he described him as being brave to the point of being foolhardy. There is overwhelming evidence of Byrd's courage. I'll tell you a story. January 1922, snowed in Washington, but more than yesterday. It snowed for 29 hours straight, producing an accumulation of 29 inches, the largest accumulation that had ever been recorded in Washington, D.C. up to that time. On Saturday night, January 28, 1922, the ceiling of the Knickerbocker Theater, 18th Street and Columbia Road, for those of you who know D.C., collapsed under the weight of the snow. Bird was passing by. He was living and working in Washington as an aide to the chief of the Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics. He runs into the theater to help rescue the survivors. People were pinned beneath slabs of concrete, masonry, and steel beams. An army captain named Captain Hills and his wife were two of the victims. Bird crawls under the debris. He calls for other rescue workers to pass him a jack and other tools. For three hours, he's lying there on his stomach, working to free Captain Hills and his wife. Meanwhile, overhead, a portion of the balcony was hanging by a sliver. And if it gave way, Bird himself would have been killed. He was commended for his gallantry. It was said, and it's been believed, that he would cynically say that he was in the hero business. He said no such thing. Here's the truth about that. You know, explorers don't make money. Explorers lose money. And I speak from personal experience. After the North Pole expedition, Bert came back to the United States owing $30,000. $30,000 in real money, 1926 money, not the stuff that Ben Bernanke is cranking out. $30,000 in money that meant something. <laughs> 
He immediately went on the lecture circuit to attempt to make money to fulfill his obligations. At that time, you know, people read a lot of magazines. There was no internet in those days. They read the Saturday Evening Post. They read the Ladies' Home Journal. They read Collier's, and they read magazines whose names have long been forgotten. And there was a demand for articles by and about Byrd. And a lot of magazine articles began appearing under Byrd's byline. And almost all of them were written by Fitzhugh Green, the same guy who was the advance man on the transatlantic flight. Fitz Green was Admiral Byrd's first ghostwriter. And Green had an idea for a story, a story about what it's like to be worshipped as a hero. It was a lovely story. It was kind of like Mariano Rivera's farewell tour. Bird, like Mariano, meets a number of people from all walks of life. They tell him about their lives and their problems. He listens politely, tries to be helpful, and realizes eventually that people were projecting on him their hopes and dreams. Green made the whole thing up. He titled the story, This Hero Business. But it had nothing whatsoever to do with making money. The word business was used in the title the way the word thing was used by President George H.W. Bush when he talked about the vision thing. This was about the hero thing. And the only thing that was actually true about this whole story was that Richard Byrd really did have a philosophical turn of mind. And this brings me to, you know, the last charge of the detractors have leveled against Byrd that I'm going to be speaking about this afternoon. When asked what attribute he considered most important for a member of an expedition, he would say loyalty, not physical conditioning, not experience, not expertise, loyalty. Well, that was true. He actually did say that. Holy cow. <laughs> but you have to understand what he meant by loyalty. When Bird went to Antarctica for the first time in 1928, he brought a box of books with him on various philosophical subjects. One of them was The Philosophy of Loyalty by Josiah Royce of Harvard University. To put Royce's conception of loyalty in one sentence, it refers to the capacity of a person to serve something larger than oneself. I know exactly what Royce meant, and I know what Bird meant. On my first expedition, I hired an Arctic guide who was in terrific physical condition. His selection of gear and equipment was top-notch. His knowledge of terrain was excellent, and his skill with map and compass was superb. But this guy could not subordinate himself, and he could not subordinate his conception of what the expedition was about to me and to my conception. And I never worked with him again. 
if someone doesn't have the capacity to serve something larger than himself or herself, it doesn't matter what shape they're in. It doesn't matter what they know. It doesn't matter what they can do. They're of no use to you whatsoever, especially if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you got one chance, one chance to try to get something done. In fact, a lot of celebrated explorers like Perry and Amundsen preferred to recruit novices rather than experienced people because novices wouldn't challenge you. I began by saying that history is not a record of what actually happened, but a record of what people believe has happened. And I want to conclude you know, by cautioning you that as you read polar history or the history of exploration or the history of other areas of human experience, beware, beware, beware the results of incomplete research, distortion, and superficial assessment. Thanks for turning out on such a polarly day. <laughs>
as a, a result of his association with Richard Byrne. Later in life, in an effect of the consumer society, when you go through a, a time in your life when you're very much in demand, and then things change and no one's returning your phone calls, it's very difficult. <laughs> That's why you find a lot of celebrities who are uh, allowing themselves to be made fools of in these ridiculous reality you know, programs. You know, they're not in demand anymore, the phone isn't ringing off the hook, and it's hard. It was hard for Balkan. So towards the end of his life, he, he was described to me as being a morose drunk. And that was the time when he started spreading these tales. Yeah, the, the uh, capital region seems to have a uh, knack for putting up monuments. And once upon a time, the Richmond International Airport was the Richard Evelyn Bird flying field. Also, at one time, there was a small display uh, that's since been taken out. And I'm just wondering, isn't it about time that we brought that display back out of storage and gave some credibility to the man that the field was named after? I most heartily agree with you. It, it, it was mentioned when I was introduced that I was a leader of an expedition in 1996. It was kind of a rash act on my part because I had never done anything like, like that before and I made a lot of mistakes. It was subsequent to that that I began doing research on Admiral Byrd. And going through his papers, uh, the Byrd papers at Ohio State University was like graduate school for me. That's where I really learned about expeditions and expedition leadership. In my opinion, he was the best damn expedition leader ever, ever. Sir, uh, do you think that uh, jealousy uh, was the motivation for Balkan's assessment? I know that when he served in the Air Force, the United States Air Force, he was known primarily as being Byrd's compatriot. And if he had been so negative about Byrd, one might question why he chose to continue serving under him, including going to the South Pole. Sure. They, they were actually friends. After the South Pole expedition, uh, Balkan married, uh, invited Byrd to dinner. Byrd attended. He wrote a letter to another expedition member. I had dinner with Byrd. He's still the same great guy he always was. Um, Balkan signed on with Lincoln Ellsworth in uh, 1930. Five expedition where Ellsworth attempted a flight, a nonstop flight, a first flight from one side of Antarctica to another. Uh, they came, you know, uh, they almost came to, uh, to, to fisticuffs because Balkan thought that the weather was, was too inclement to proceed and Ellsworth disagreed. Ellsworth later accomplished that flight with someone else. Balkan then went into commercial aviation in his native Norway. He served heroically in World War II. He felt, though, that he never got credit for a lot of the things that he did. And I, I've seen um, uh, an article uh, about some rescues uh, missions that Balkan participated in in, in Greenland, uh, rescuing downed uh, Allied aviators. And the credit went to the younger pilots, you know, and, and co-pilots. So it, it, it wasn't really a matter of jealousy regarding Bird as much as it was a matter of feeling of not having of no longer receiving the credit in that he felt that, that he deserved. 
And, you know, it's, it, to me, it's, it, it's all very sad because uh, if you had in the 1920s to make a number one draft choice for an expedition member, you would pick Balkan like that, you know, because uh, of his talents and, and, and his um, quiet nature. And uh, it's, it's, it's a tragedy, really, that you know, things took the turn with him, you know, that, that they did.